From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, healthy living in the Wasatch. I'm David Windsor, and this morning we speak with the New York Times bestselling author of How Not to Die series, Dr. Dr. Michael Greger, who will now tell us how not to age, the scientific approach to getting healthier as you get older. He helps us separate the science from the gimmicks and gives us a strategy to keep all our systems younger and healthier. Then we explore the sport of Schemo, short for ski mountaineering, with local Schemo leaders Rob Aldrich and John Allenson. Have you ever been on the mountain with seeing people with Lycris onesies racing up the hills on their skis? Well, that's just part of the rapidly growing human-powered sport that will be an Olympic sport in Italy in 2026. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us with The Mountain Life. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. Well, as it turns out, according to our next guest, there may be no such thing as dying of old age. Or is there? Even the centenarians out there don't die of old age. They end up dying of age-related ailments. So if we can adjust the rate of disease by lifestyle, is the rate of aging also modifiable? Our guest is Dr. Michael Greger, and he's written a new book called How Not to Age, The Scientific Approach to Getting Healthier as You Get Older. It features accessible research and actionable steps to help preserve the body functions that keep you feeling and looking youthful. Dr. Michael Greger, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you so much. Looking forward to hopefully inspire some of your listeners to live longer, better lives. <laughs> well, uh, I think you've already inspired me. This is a treasure trove of information. I feel like we have to talk 100 miles an hour just to get it all in in 25 minutes. But that's kind of why we should probably all have this book sitting on our bookshelf. So first, you start off by talking about this consensus paper um, written by all of these leading doctors in, you know, about aging and about what these pathways are to aging and how to counteract. So give us an overview of what, what a pathway to aging is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were interesting kind of pharmacological, pharmacological approaches. So, you know, uh, it was kind of funded by Big Pharma to see what we could do, kind of druggable targets for aging. But when I read that paper, I realized, wait a second, every single one of these pathways that they're mentioning could be modulated with diet and lifestyle, which has the benefit of only having positive uh, side effects. Um, so the 11 most promising pathways for kind of slowing the sands of time, um, uh, I, I go through, we talk about kind of practical proposals for kind of uh, targeting them naturally with diet and lifestyle changes. So it's like boosting the anti-aging enzymes and hormones, uh, AMPK, FGF21, sirtuins, telomerase, while suppressing the pro aging enzymes and hormones, mTOR, IGF-1, decreasing glycation, inflammation, oxidation, senescence, while preserving autophagy, our telomeres, slowing the epigenetic clock. I know there's a lot of fancy sounding scientific terms. I really do try to kind of break it down into easily understandable, doable, and practical takeaways. Yeah, so this is the thing, and I think it's why you introduce all of this science, because largely the whole anti-aging industry, and it is an industry, is, excuse me, pretty gimmicky. Um, so what you want to do is to present to your readers and your listeners that, hey, this is really well-researched science, and that's why a lot of these 11 pathways 
the likes of which you you already sort of rattled off that a lot of us have never heard of before. I mean, we we know about things like inflammation and, you know, even epigenetics, but there are some pathways that are foreign to us. And so why is it, is it important for us to understand those pathways to begin with? Well, yeah, it's certainly, that's kind of the nerdy section of the book. The, the first section where I go through 11 aging pathways, if people want to just skip to the takeaways, you know, I have a little, you know, a summary box at the end, like, all right, here's, here's what you do every day. This is what I recommend with each meal or with each day. Um, people are certainly welcome to, but I find that it can be more motivating for people to understand why, you know, when your mom says, eat your greens, and you and you kind of nod your head, but then you find out, oh my God, these green dark green leafy vegetables have these nitrates actually slow our metabolic rate like caloric restriction might. So instead of walking around starving all the time, we just sit down to a big salad in terms of um, uh, in terms of extending our lives. Um, and so you know, I think when we learn about some of the food components and the mechanisms, it often may click and motivate in a way that just kind of you know uh, prescriptions without kind of showing your work might not. Dr. Gregor, there's a there's a whole new world of biohacking, and there's a lot of conversation about the wealthy trying to pro prolong and just become healthier. And there's the infrared saunas and the cold plunges and all these biohacking techniques that are becoming really mainstream. What is it about these things? And do they carry a lot of validity with them? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I wrote this book to kind of cut through the noise and the nonsense. You know, it reminded me of my last book on weight loss, where, you know, both dieting and anti-aging are multi-billion dollar industries. And, you know, with so much money in the mix, anyone seeking even, uh, you know, basic practical advice in either arena, uh, living longer or lighter, uh, is faced with just an inscrutable barrage of pills and potions and procedures and devices. I mean, even as a physician with the luxury of wading through, you know, neck deep in the medical journals, it's really been a challenge to separate out the facts from farce. And if it took me three years to sift through, uh, you know, all the science, I'm afraid the casual observer would just kind of have no chance. But the good news is that it turns out we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity, and that the vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with a healthy enough diet and lifestyle, no mega purchase necessary. Good for the bank account. I like that. So when it comes to the healthy diet and lifestyle, this is obviously something that's been, we've known this forever and just applying it is one thing, but what would you say if if someone were starting this journey for the first time and they felt kind of stuck in their health and their lifestyle, what is the simplest thing that they can implement into their diet and their health to help prolong and not age? Well, according to the Global Burden of Disease Study, which is the largest systemic analysis of risk factors in history funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the number one cause of death in the United States is the American diet, bumping tobacco to number two. Cigarettes not only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. And so, okay, what are the worst things about the American diet? And so the top five, according to them, um, in terms of diminished life expectancy, number one, not eating enough legumes like beans, peas, chickpeas, lentils. Number two, not eating enough whole grains. Number three, not eating enough nuts. So 
three out of the five are things we're actually not getting enough of. So that's easy to just add healthy foods to our diet. Then number four is is eating too much meat. And number five is drinking too much soda. Um, uh, but look, it doesn't matter what you eat on your birthdays or holidays, special occasions. It's the day-to-day stuff that really adds up. You know, on a day-to-day basis, we really should try to center our diets around, you know, natural foods from fields, not factories. You know, these unprocessed plant foods. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Dr. Michael Greger. His new book is How Not to Age. He, previous to this, wrote the series How Not to Die, which is sort of why we are here with this book, right, Dr. Greger? Um, Tell us what the connection was, what you found in writing How Not to Die that leads us to where you think we can be is, is, is adjusting our aging. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as you noted at the top, you know, there's no such thing as dying from old age. Based on a uh, study of 42,000 consecutive autopsies, uh, centenarians, those who live to be 100, were found to have succumbed to disease in 100% of cases. Uh, the most were perceived, even by their physicians, as being healthy just prior to death on autopsy. Uh, not one of them died of old age. They died from disease, most commonly heart disease. Uh, the number one killer of men and women in general. So it's like, well, wait a second. If if most deaths are from disease, why wasn't my book How Not to Die all the longevity book anyone needs? I just, you know, the first half of the book is just 15 chapters on each of the 15 leading causes of death, talking about the role diet, me playing preventing, arresting, reversing each of our top 15 killers. But you know, then I realized writing this book that a principal risk factor of many of our killer diseases is actually aging. So yes, you know, having a high cholesterol can increase your risk of heart disease as much as 20-fold, but an 80-year-old has 500 times the risk of having a heart attack compared to a 20-year-old, right? And so, I mean, the reason we focus on things like cholesterol is because it's a modifiable risk factor. But what if aging is modifiable too. And so that's really where the How Not to Age book comes in. So you have all these actionable steps, but before we get to that, I want to talk about how we sort of accept, you know, once we turn 40, we accept that there are these certain things like, oh, my knees are going. Once we turn 50, we accept these other things, you know, like my prostate's enlarging. I shouldn't say that, I'm a woman, but, uh, You know, you know what I'm getting at. And um, so much of it goes back to inflammation, but we don't often have conversations about inflammation. And inflammation is such an overarching thing that we really need to understand. What are we not understanding about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important and something that I think surprised me a lot is that many of the things that we consider inevitable consequences of aging like hearing loss, the fact that our blood pressures tend to go up, actually are not universal. So there are populations where you don't have an increase in blood pressure as you age. So 70-year-olds, same average blood pressure as 16-year-olds at 110 over 70, perfect blood pressures with no increase as they age. Similarly, there are populations that have no drop in hearing loss as they age. We just assume, well, that's just what happens. So he's like, wait a second, what about these populations? What are they doing? How are they living that can inform us? Um, And so we shouldn't just kind of uh, just give up and assume, oh, it's there's nothing I could have done about it. We actually do have tremendous power over, over, uh, over kind of both 
death and disability. And one of the um, pathways, the pro-aging pathways, is indeed inflammation. Um, when you get like a, a splinter in your finger, right, uh, you know, and your finger gets all, you know, red and warm and painful, swollen, that's inflammation. It's our body's natural reaction to tissue damage or irritation. And its purpose is to trigger the healing process, not a disease process. Uh, your body's reaction to the splinter is an example of acute inflammation, localized, temporary, a direct response to infection or injury that focuses on resolving the problem. The issue when it comes to aging is chronic inflammation, also known as metabolic inflammation, um, which is a systemic, persistent, uh, nonspecific um, uh, form of inflammation that appears to perpetuate disease. This is, has this kind of low-grade smoldering quality that can be picked up on blood tests um, showing abnormally high levels of inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein or something. I mean, indeed, a single blood test for these inflammatory markers can predict uh, physical and cognitive um, health as well as remaining lifespan in older individuals. And thankfully, this excess inflammation can be extinguished through changes in diet by decreasing our intake of pro-inflammatory food components like saturated fat and sodium and increasing foods that have shown to be, be anti-inflammatory, such as beans, berries, greens, uh, tomato paste, oats and flax seeds, uh, turmeric, ginger, garlic, cinnamon, um, as well as green tea and chamomile tea, the two most anti-inflammatory beverages. Dr. Greger, as far as like the biohacking, I've been an individual who has dabbled in all different types of challenges and diets and fads. And one of the things I've been on for the last maybe four years or so is the cold plunge and the reduction of inflammation that I hear. But my my Achilles is I don't do much. I don't have much science to back this up. I hear it on a podcast. I read a little blurb and I'm I'm all in. And so I and it makes me feel good. So as far as something like a cold plunge and the reduction of inflammation, is this something that is in line with what we're talking about? That's a fantastic question. And because I've got that question, um, it's nothing that wasn't covered in the book. Um, I uh, intend to do a whole video series about it. I have a website, nutritionfacts.org. Um, and to discuss the pros and cons, I was surprised. There's actually a serious literature in peer-reviewed uh, medical literature on cold plunges, both the pros and cons, the risks, the contraindications, who shouldn't do it. Um, and so look forward to teasing out the pros and cons. Unfortunately, I just can't answer that question now because I have not uh, gone through the science. Got it. So I'm curious about the the timeline of the the human aging and and what has happened and obviously as time has gone over on over the last 50 to 100 years the lifespan has gotten longer and so as lynn was saying earlier you know when you turn 40 your knees go out when you turn 50 something happens are we starting to see that there's a new decade that represents what we used to think it was if that makes sense as as we age longer yeah, it, it's certainly not just about adding years to your life, but life to your years. You know, when asked how long do people live and given a choice between 85, 120, 150, or indefinitely, to my surprise, two-thirds said they'd prefer only to live to 85. But when the question was reframed as how long do you wish to live in guaranteed physical and mental health, oh, 
then all of a sudden the popular answer, you know, jumped to an unlimited lifespan, right? So this brings up the concept of health span, the period of one's life in good health, free from chronic disease and disability. I mean, you know, what's the point of living longer if we can't enjoy it vibrantly? Unfortunately, um, uh, you know, we've it's kind of been two steps forward, one step back. Our life expectancy, at least up until 2014, was increasing, even though our health span was decreasing. We were liver long, liver living longer in sickness, not in health, and now we're not even living longer. Um, uh, so our life expectancy started to drip uh, to dip after peaking in 2014 such that we are raising the first generation of Americans set to live shorter lives than their parents, thanks to the obesity epidemic primarily. And that dip was even before COVID, um, which uh, knocked a couple of years off our lifespan. Um, uh, uh, and so uh, we, we've got a lot of catching up to do. And so I'm so excited that uh, this book is finally out and hopefully able to help some people. Well, I'm excited this book is out too. And and it really, I mean, I feel like what it's trying to do is dispel all these contradictions that we hear. And, and let me just list a couple. Okay, so one of the things you talk about is chronic constipation in your book. And so this, this is sort of a component of aging. And so you've got the people that say on the one hand, oh, you, you got to take Metamucil, you know, every day. And then you have other practitioners. I've heard this. Do not take Metamucil. The psyllium will solidify in your colon. And unless you do XYZ, which includes drinking copious amounts of water, it's going to become cement. And so you go, okay, which one is it? You know, if you listen to this Stephen Gundry, Dr. Stephen Gundry, you know, it's lectins. Oh, never have another cashew. Yet cashews we also know are so healthy. Help me out on that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Chronic, chronic constipation um, definitely becomes more common as we become older. And it's not just the constipation itself, but routine straining um, to pass stool can contribute to problems such as diverticulosis, hemorrhoids, hiatal hernia, varicose veins. Um, and so the best way to address constipation is to both exercise regularly and to increase our intake of fiber-rich foods, particularly legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, lentils, and whole intact grains. Um, uh, although uh, fiber supplements like psyllium uh, uh, sold as Metamucil can uh, improve constipation symptoms, fiber supplements don't appear to match the chronic disease benefits attributed to the dietary fiber found naturally in foods. So, for example, flax seeds, prunes, fresh mangoes have all been shown to beat out psyllium in randomized controlled trials for um, constipation relief and indeed don't have the uh, potential risk of uh, causing uh, blockages if you're not drinking sufficient water with it. Um, one of the reasons we think whole natural foods work so much better is because the fiber is fermentable by our good gut bugs. It can act as a prebiotic, whereas psyllium is actually indigestible even by our gut bugs, so it can help with regularity, but doesn't have all those other beneficial effects you get from feeding your microbiome, the good gut bugs in your bowels. Oh my goodness. And not to pick on Dr. Stephen Gundry, but he's all over the internet and this whole thing about the lectins. It, it just, I think what it ends up making people do is thinking, I'm just not going to listen to any of it because I'm just going to go about my life. I'm going to do everything in moderation. But again, I think that's what you're trying to sort of combat with this book and really give us all the science. 
Yeah, that's what the food industry wants. It wants us just kind of throw our hands up in the air and kind of eat whatever crap they put in front of us. Um, but, you know, we actually have decades of consensus within um, the scientific community as really the core tenements to healthy eating. You know, uh, there's this uh, um, uh, True Health Initiative. You can go to truehealthinitiative.org, which is kind of designed to be the IPCC of nutrition, basically bringing together hundreds of the top nutrition scientists in the world, like Dr. Walt Willett at Harvard, et cetera, to agree on a consensus statement of what is the healthiest human diet to kind of, you know, to, to break through all that uh, kind of the commercial corruption and muddying of the waters. And spoiler alert, uh, the healthiest diet is one centered around these whole unprocessed plant foods. That was, you read, led right into my next question as far as the corporate corruption. I mean, I'm curious, will we ever reach a time where we're not influenced by the policies that have been passed based on certain bills and uh, policyholders that have been incentivized to to proactively represent some type of food or industry for our health. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up incentives. Um, there really are these kind of perverse incentives, and in that the health the the unhealthiest foods are the most profitable foods, right? I mean, fruits and vegetables are the worst thing to sell. They go bad, they're perishable, right? They rot on the shelves. What do you want is a snack cake that sits on the shelf for a few weeks or even better, sell brown sugar water in a bottle. It's like pure profit. We have taxpayer subsidized sugar. So it's like all money. So, you know, the head of these soda companies, is not, you know, rubbing their sticky little hands together thinking, how can I contribute to the childhood obesity epidemic? They're like, how can I satisfy the next quarter for my shareholders? And if all of a sudden they got a conscience and wanted to sell something healthier, they'd get booted out and replaced by someone who's going to stick to the plan, which is selling the worst food. And so these companies do not have the best interests of our family at heart. So we really have to kind of educate ourselves um, and uh, and understand that, even though we're never going to see an ad on the Super Bowl for sweet potatoes. I mean, it's just because the system is set up to promote the wrong foods. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter about taking control of our, our health, our family's health and our community's health um, and not leaving it to these uh, corporations to manipulate us. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what I would imagine has led you into choosing this career in medicine and about the science of aging. And I, I guess what would you say our biggest uphill battle is as as a culture and what we're going to have to overcome over the next 20 years if we're going to focus on aging and, and being healthy? Um, it's this uh, misinformation mess. I mean, it's just, you know, the the, the, the there's so much money um, involved. I mean, you know, when it comes to health, People are willing, even people that don't really have the money, really can't afford to spend that much money, they will spend all sorts of money on these kind of, you know, these these pills and potions that are, are promising people. And that's why there's so much interest. That's why we have this multi-billion dollar supplement industry and all these kind of, you know, sleazy snake oil salespeople trying to, to peddle their wares to the most vulnerable among us. Um, and so, you know, yeah, that's why I really felt it was important to really kind of put out, you know, a comprehensive science-based book um, to say, you know, what, you know, kind of weed through all that noise and nonsense and, and get at, um, you know, what 
what really works. And frankly, what really works is not particularly profitable, but it really comes back to some of the real, some of the basics. You know, I, I don't want people to kind of get lost in the weeds. Uh, you know, that's the whole conclusion of the book where I talk about how, you know, it's really the basic common sense behaviors can mean living, you know, a, a healthy decade or not, not smoking, not being obese, moving regularly, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables. And, you know, it's never too late, never too late to stop smoking, never too late to start exercising, never too late to start eating healthier. We really do have the power. Well, Dr. Michael Greger, before we let you go, we might as well just give our listeners this one thing to walk away with, and it's the quick anti-aging eight, these essential, eight essential keys. <laughs> Not so quick, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but these are, so this is the compliment on my Daily Dozen, which I presented in, in How Not to Die, the Daily Dozen kind of foods um, and habits I encourage people to fit into their daily routine. Um, okay. Uh, and so this was, well, what what are the ones in particular for anti-aging? So I talk about foods like um, berries, the healthiest fruits, dark green leafy vegetables, the healthiest vegetables, and exactly how um, they can uh, uh, prevent chronic disease, slow down the aging process. Um, again, just trying to inspire people to include some of the healthiest of healthy things in their daily routine. Excellent. Dr. Michael Greger, the book is How Not to Age. It's a scientific approach to getting healthier as you get older. Thank you so much. We all want as much vitality as you have. Wow. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. No, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, keep up the good work yourself. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm David Windsor. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. In 2026, a new winter sport will debut at the Olympic Games in Italy. It's called Schemo, short for ski mountaineering. Essentially, it's both uphill and downhill ski race. It's an organized competitive version of backcountry skiing or ski touring. It has long been popular sport in Europe, and it's now gaining a huge following in the U.S. Joining us from the Utah Schemo is Park City resident Rob Aldrich and John Allenson, who are the current leaders of this nonprofit. John, Rob, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks so for having I've been around the sport of ski touring for a long time, and I actually have quite a few friends who have dabbled in these competitive events, mainly in South America. The popularity of the sport is quite interesting, but for the listener, tell us a little bit about the sport, John. What is it, and how does it work? Is it is it multiple laps? Is it one big lap? How does the event work? Yeah, for sure. Um, like you said earlier, a schema is short for ski mountaineering, and it's essentially a fast, efficient, performance-oriented way of ski touring. Uh, you're typically in a, in a Lycra onesie with very small skis uh, and skins, you know, full carbon lightweight boots, and you skin as hard as you can up the hill as fast as you can. Kick turns, it's technical on the up. You rip your skins off in usually under 20 seconds, and you typically ski down uh, technical off-piste runs that are usually black or double black diamonds. And yes. is it one lap? No, it's multiple laps. It can be uh, multiple laps. So usually, like here in the U.S., it can be one big circuit, or it can be point-to-point, -point, um, or it can be a series of laps or loops. Um, some of them do cloverleaf-shaped loops. Other ones are, like, like I said, point-to-point. -point. Now... Rob, are, are there many disciplines to the sport, i.e. there's a sprint race, an endurance race, a tag team race, or is it just one, one event culminates the whole sport? So there are you know, really three different disciplines underneath the schema umbrella. Um, there's the sprint, which is 
a very short race, you know, three to five minutes. Um, and it's more of a circuit style of race. So, you know, you'll start skinning, you'll go through some kick turns, you'll take your skis off, put them on your pack and, you know, run up in kind of a boot pack section, put your skis back on, skin to the top, you know, maybe 300 vertical feet or so for the entire uphill section. And then you ski down through gates and then that's done in heats. And then the individual is probably the most fun. And that's probably what Schemo is mostly known for. Um, and that's, you know, multiple ups and downs throughout sometimes an entire ski resort, or as John said, a point to point, um, you know, ranging a distance from maybe 3000 vertical feet to 10,000 vertical feet, um, over, you know, two to 10 ups. And some races have, um, via ferradas where you're clipping in some have, you know, you repel over rocky sections, then it's really, really fun. And then the last one is just the guess vertical. So you're just going uphill and it's like a time trial drag race. <laughs> if you're just joining us on the mountain life, we are talking with the two leaders of Utah Schemo, John Allison and Rob Aldrich. You know, that powder keg race that at least back in the beginning, I think it always took place at Alta. I'm sure it has changed over the years, but it's been around for a long time. But when I think about that, I think about those of us who got out in our tele gear, our heavy tele gear that we <clears throat> may have used, you know, on the resort or to ski tour. And we're not wearing a Lycra onesie. <laughs> we're wearing just our normal, you know, what we would ski tour in. And the sport has evolved so much. Rob, talk about the beginnings and how it has evolved and why it has since then. You know, that's a really good question. I think, you know, with the growth of people wanting to be out in the mountains and move around efficiently and has really kind of played a big piece into that. Um, I also think, you know, people coming from a cycling or running background that are kind of looking kind of from other endurance sports that want to kind of either carry a base or have something to do throughout the winter. Um, it provides a really good outlet to do that. Um, and an excuse to get outside. I think it's, it's tough sometimes when it's cold and the days are short and it's dark to, um, you know, find yourself not wanting to get out of the house. And, you know, I think it's a really fun competitive thing to do in the winter. And, at the end of the day, it's skiing. You know, the powder keg is called the powder keg because I think of the five times I've done it, it's been powder skiing for the five years. So I think that there's a big component of that as well. <laughs> okay, well, that brings up another really obvious question. John, I'll toss this one to you, but can it really be powder skiing if you're skiing on what amounts to like running shoes that are strapped into these very skinny light skis? I mean, is it really as enjoyable as our big fat powder skis? <laughs> it's funny you should ask uh, that line because um, the gear has gotten so good these days. It's so, so good that even the lightweight touring gear now skis like what is considered, you know, heavier powdery touring gear from even just five years ago. Um, having said that, the race gear, the full carbon boots, the tiny little dainty boots and the tiny dainty skis, it can be a lot of fun skiing. Sure, you're not going to um, slay 18 inches of pow on a pair of race skis, but six to eight inches of pow 
with a pair of race skis and boots is tons of fun. And I'm not even a proficient skier like Rob. Rob's a fantastic skier. He slays it all. But I can guarantee you on a pair of race skis, six to eight inches of fresh cow, it's a ton of fun. <laughs> okay, that is good to know. So Utah Schemo organizes a race series. And I have to say, I did one of these races some years ago at Brighton. And they're all in the evening because, of course, ski resorts um, you know, they close and then they're available for this uphill traffic. <clears throat> I had a great time doing it, but I will say with my really heavy, uh, I can't remember if I did it on AT gear or tele gear. I did feel like I wanted the light stuff. I wanted to be able to go as fast as those other folks. So John, you know, what, what's the percentage of people just showing up to try it out with he their heavy old ski mountaineering gear? Yeah. So I just, you know, quick plug for Utah schema. We are the largest uh, citizen series in North America. We probably get on average around 150 to 160 participants on every Tuesday night, which is more than double any other series in North America. Having said that, if a hundred people show up to one of our events, I would say 15 to 20 of them would be on full-blown race gear, carbon boots, carbon skis, onesies. The next 60 to 70 of the skiers would be on their regular, like lighter weight touring gear. They're all around stuff. And the last 15 to 20 will probably be like your kids who just got the gear that they have, but you also have like telemark skiers. You'll have split borders. You have people running their, you know, 115 under foot powder skis. So it really runs the gamut, but the bulk of our skiers are just people who really like to get out and recreate in the dark with the headlamp and have a great great raffle afterwards. So it is truly a community-based organization that we are. So really quick, John, are there any got any individuals in their AT gear that are able to hold their own against the race gear? Yes, there are some really, really fit people uh, uh, here in the Wasatch or Central Wasatch. Um, last year, we had a guy who was running metal-edged Nordic skis, and I think he probably beat about 95% of us up the hill and held his own on the down. So there are some really fit, fast, up-and-down skiers for sure. I'm sure he slept well that night. Yeah. Uh, Rob, we were talking before we started the interview, and we were just talking about the the increase in uphill traffic that we're starting to see, especially these local resorts, and how a lot of people are starting to just get into the sport itself. And there's there's a lot of growth, and I think COVID definitely changed the outdoor industry as a whole. And so, I'm curious, what what is the sudden growth with this this new sport, and has it been good for you guys, or has it kind of been frustrating now that you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of people in the uphill traffic? You know, it's been great for us. Um, more participation is better. Um, growing the sport and the more people that show up, uh, the more smiling faces, the more people that are out suffering, um, the better. Um, you know, I think it's, it's really cool to see. It's such a niche, unique kind of, I don't want to say weird, but it's like a, you know, trying to convince people to come out at night and run around in the snow at the headlamp it thinks like you know who would ever want to do that and then you know we've had 150 people show up to race i mean it's really it's been really remarkable to see you know how much it's grown and how cool it's actually becoming um i think that's a big part of it too um you know and i 
was first training, you know, six, seven years ago at Park City, kind of in my spandex and running up the hill in the morning, people kind of look at me like I was, you know, a little odd. Um, and now people are like cheering you on when you're going uphill. So I think it's it's really cool to watch the sport grow and becoming kind of more of a household thing that people know about. I love that. That's fantastic. So I can imagine, you know, as it's becoming an international sport and an Olympic sport for that matter, that there's got to be some protocols and things that you have to to meet to, with the IOC. And so that being said, walk us through one of the seasons and what what the the events look like and how each event, what kind of weight it carries and how it stacks throughout the season. Uh, locally or more on the international Olympic stage? More on the international Olympic qualifying stage. Yeah, um, every country's a little different. Uh, from my understanding, the way USMMA or US Key Mountaineering Association has, has set it up is that it's a series of qualifying um, national events and World Cup events that will get you a slot into the Olympics in 2026. They haven't worked out 100% the details, but it's, it'll be some series of national to World Cup qualifiers. Um, unfortunately, because like we said earlier, the sport is still very small. There's only 36 total athletes, total in the world that will be qualified to go to the Olympics. And of those 36, it'll be um, 18 males, 18 females. So just having your country get into the Olympics will be a huge deal. Um, and each country will be able to send two athletes, one male, one female. So as you can see, when you can only send one athlete by gender, it becomes very, very tough. Um, and in the Olympics this year, it'll be just the sprint event, that's the short three to five minute event that Rob was talking about earlier, and then a mixed gender relay where the male and female do a, a lap of a course, tag each other and go. So the qualifying stuff is still evolving and we'll see how it goes, but it'll definitely be a, a combination of national World Cup qualifiers. Okay, great. So as David mentioned in the intro, Rob, it's been, the sport has been really popular in Europe for a long time and racing, and they've been wearing Lycra onesies for a really long time there. And so it's been very, very competitive there. And we've had here in Park City, a couple of those people come to either work kind of temporarily. I know Gemma, from Spain, she's a World Cup racer, and she was here, we interviewed her on this show. But I'm wondering um, how much those kinds of people have fed into the popularity here. I know there are several youth teams around the state, and in fact, there's one very active one here in Park City. How have these outside influences served to popularize the sport locally, and how are you seeing it grow, and how are you getting kids involved rob popularity here is you know also very good i actually am one of the coaches of the park city schemo team with pcss park city ski and snowboard um and we have you know almost 40 kids so you know that's i think really growing the sport but starting it from a young age and there's two big programs in the state with us in silver fork um, and big cottonwood canyon and then even the growth of new programs. Snowbird is starting to, starting a small team there, um, as well as Snow Basin. So, you know, I think more and more youth are getting interested in it as well. And, you know, we're seeing it's a lot of kids from the mountain bike team, um, the cross country team. It's, it's really cool. And just to watch the, you know, them be so excited about coming to practice and 
being part of the sport is really cool. Yes. So we also have one of the young Park City residents, one of the great skiers who we need to brag on for a minute, Griffin Briley, who has made it to the World Cup competition. Um, yeah, Griffin, uh, he's quite the specimen. Um, he couldn't be a nicer kid and be a bigger supporter of the sport and everybody else around him. And he also happens to, you know, be one of the best schemo athletes in the U.S., whether, you know, not even just in his age group. You know, he has really progressed and gotten just kind of to be the world champion. He's, yeah, it's really cool that Riley family are awesome people. And it's, he's a really good ambassador of the sport. And taking a deeper look into some of teenager Griffin Briley's results in world championships in the 2023 season. He has a gold, a silver, and a bronze finish at the world championships in Spain, among many other great finishes on the World Cup. So what kind of promise does he have for a possible showing at the Olympics in Italy in 2026? Looks like that's going to be a goal that he's set for himself. You know, I'd say that if he continues to progress and, you know, really dials in the the sprint discipline, um, chances could be pretty good. Now, John, looking at your background, you're a very organized person and you have the personality of a ski mountaineer. Most mountaineers I know have the organizational skill to to get their racks, their ropes, their helmets. Everything has to be in place for for a situation when you're out in the backcountry. I know I know packing a bag has a lot of to do with that and keeping the weight down. Now in this sport, is there anything other than like a place to carry your skins and your jacket? I mean, you're wearing a lycra suit. So is obviously weight is a huge component of it, but is does the mountaineering style fit into the sport at all? Yeah, um, you'll especially see the mountaineering component of ski mountaineering, uh, and especially in the European races. There's only a couple here in, in the US that have, you know, the, the requirements for crampons or, you know, harnesses for you know, via ferratas. However, in Europe, the big stage races all require mountaineering style equipment, you know, um, harnesses for via ferratas, rappelling ropes, uh, and also crampons. And all that gear is super dialed to be very, very lightweight. Um, you know, there are definitely minimum standards that ISMF or the International Ski Mountaineering Federation requires for it but you will find people using the lightest of everything, even sometimes filing it down to, to remove grams for it. I do not recommend that. You do not get that from me. Do not file your stuff, uh, but people do everything possible to get the weight down as much as possible for uh, racing, especially in the European, uh, big European races. Interesting. So I want to just go into the etiquette of all this. And so when, is there, when you're in, these resorts or locations going uphill traffic there's there's a lot of new people to the sport so what is the etiquette what is uh what how does that translate with the popularity of the sport yeah uh here in utah like we're lucky to have very wide typically you know ski runs that we that we go up and down on the ones that are inbounds a blessing in the backcountry you're on a skin track there's one skinner uh typically the the courtesy courteous thing to do is to you know step off the skin track as someone is passing and people are typically very friendly i haven't honestly i've been touring now for six years 
and I've never had a skin track issue or etiquette issue. Can't say that necessarily on our sometimes very packed mountain biking trails um, when you have horses, runners, bikers, etc. cetera. Uh, but in the backcountry, things are very, very courteous and you just step off the skinner and, and you go. For those who may be interested in trying the sport or at least learning more about it, you can go to the Schema website. It's utahschemo.org. It is a nonprofit. That's correct. And you can look at the schedule. So the first race is coming up and there's still time to register. It's on December 12th. It starts at 7 p.m. at Brighton Resort. And it's my understanding, or at least as I remember, that Brighton was one of the first resorts that said, hey, this is popular. We're going to allow this. We're going to host races. But since then, Park City Mountain also has put a few races on the calendar. Rob, um, give us an overview of the races. So from a schedule standpoint or just location or? It just kind of, um, well, maybe schedule how many races and what it looks like when if you show up. So we have six races um, bet- scattered between Brighton, Solitude and Park City. So first race is the 12th at Brighton. We have races here in Park City on January 9th and March 12th. Um, So those are good for people that don't want to necessarily drive over to Big Conwood Canyon. Um, You know, we have kind of two different courses every night. So there's a long course and a short course. So kind of what we'll call the race course and the rec course. Um, Generally, all that means is that if, you know, we'll set kind of one loop and then the rec division will do that once. It'll probably consist of one to two ups and two downs. Um, and then the race group would do that twice. Um, so we, our goal is to kind of keep everybody out running around on snow for about an hour, um, maybe a little more. Um, so we're kind of off the hill inside um, doing our raffle and kind of talking shop about what went wrong during our race. Oh, I like that. Yeah, reminiscent of cross-country ski races where afterwards everyone talks about how they didn't wax correctly and that's their excuse. (laughs) I'd like to add with our events, since we are community-based, we try to keep the barrier to entry very low. So there is no need for a beacon shovel probe since we are inbounds the whole time. Just headlamp and helmet. Yeah, we really try to keep that barrier low. We don't want to have to have people invest in, you know, Abbey gear, if they're just coming to the resort. So um, that's oh. another way we, we, we keep the barrier very low. Right, that is a really great point. So it's easy, all you need is a helmet and a headlamp, you're gonna want those anyway, um, cause it's dark out there. <laughs> and uh, um, so again, next Tuesday, the 12th of December, 7 p.m. At, at Brighton Ski Resort, that's the first race and in terms of the rest of the season, I, I saw on your website, you can sign up for the whole season if you mm-hmm. want. That's correct. Okay. Yep. How many young people end up showing up for these races? Because again, like we're talking about, you know, the Park City kids and a growing sport. I could never get my kids to do anything other than lift, serve, skiing. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Um, on paper, between Park City Schemo, Silver Fork Schemo, Snowboard and Snow Basin, we could technically have close to 100 under 18 athletes. I think Utah has more youth athletes than any other state, maybe than any of all the other youth programs combined. And uh, 
So yeah, up to 90. Typically we have between 45 and 60 athlete, youth athletes showing up just depending on their race schedule, their training schedule, et cetera, and other things that they do. Because many of the athletes, as Rob had stated earlier, you know, they do other sports, they Nordic ski, they run, they alpine race, et cetera. Well, it's so great to hear from both of you, John Allison and Rob Aldrich. Um, really fun sport. We hope that this inspires people to get on out. David, what do you think? Can can we uh, make a pact now that we, you and I will both go out one evening and, at Park City Resort and do this? I'm in. My hamstrings are already feeling it. <laughs> Mine too. All right. John and Rob, Utah Schemo, thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, David. And just to add in, since we talked a lot about uphill travel at Park City Mountain, there's some information posted on parkcitymountain.com about the uphill access, whether it's parking or just their policies, you should go on parkcitymountain.com again to check out all the rules. But that started for the season as of yesterday, December 5th, and skiers are welcome to travel uphill during the following hours, 6 p.m. So after the resort closes all the way through the night and until 8.30 a.m. Again, that began yesterday, December 5th. That's in very specific places. Non-motorized use or uphill traffic allowed on home run from the bottom of first time lift up to the angle station, but not above the angle station. That's uh, the angle stations, the old angle station up at the top of the town lift. So dogs are prohibited. It's just uh, you're, you should wear reflective materials and a headlamp and obey all of the pertinent signage, wear brightly colored clothing and stay towards the side of the trail. As we know, there are a lot of snowmobiles um, with members of the, the staff at the mountain getting ready for the season and, and that sort of thing. So thanks for tuning in to this conversation with Rob Aldrich and John Allison of Utah Schemo.